Copy, Hog Zero One. Night Owl, Hog Zero One. Friendly's in sight, target in sight, in from the south. In from the south, you are cleared on, cleared on. Wolf Hog Element, good guns, good guns. Welcome to the Pathway to Wings podcast, a podcast for aspiring Air Force aviators, hosted by current and former Air Force aviators. My name is Major John Waters. I'm a former F-16 pilot, and now I work for the recruiting service as an Air Force reservist. My guest today is Lieutenant Colonel Catherine Armandy. She's an F-15E Weapons System Operator, or WISO. We're gonna dive into her Air Force career, her path through aviation. I think you're gonna enjoy the episode. Wherever you're listening, please hit like and subscribe. Leave us a rating review over on iTunes. That'll help the podcast out. And with that being said, let's get into the podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Catherine Lilo Armandy. Well, I'm excited. I got my good friend Lilo joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for joining me. Lilo, would you tell me a little bit about who you are, what you're doing today, the 30 to 60 second elevator pitch? Sure. So excited to be here with you, Rain, and to catch up. Uh, my name is Lieutenant Colonel Catherine Lilo Armandi. Uh, currently stationed at Joint Base San Antonio, well, Joint Base Randolph in San Antonio, and I'm working at Headquarters Air Education and Training Command, where I'm the Chief of Rated Diversity, which I'll, I'll talk about later. So I started off my Air Force career as a sophomore in college, joining ROTC. I wasn't really sure if it was for me, um, and then 9-11 happened, uh, and then I spent that rest of that year staying in ROTC, and then went to field training and got an incentive flight. Uh, and after that, I was just kind of hooked. I think I found my purpose and then found a passion. Um, and then I ended up staying the rest of the time in the commissioning from Loyola Marymount University, Debt 040, and got my degree at the University of California, Irvine. After that, I went to Naval Air Station Pensacola and attended Joint Specialized Undergraduate Navigator Training, which was uh, hosted by the Navy. And so we had Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, um, and then international students. We had Germans, I think Italians at the time, and went through flight school there. It was about a year and change by the time everything was said and done. Uh, and then got my wings and then went off to fly the mighty F-15E Strike Eagle, went through 10 months of training at Seymour Johnson in North Carolina, and then finally ended up about at the end of my third year uh, at RAF Lake and Heath in the United Kingdom, which was my dream assignment, flying my dream aircraft. I spent four years there, which is pretty long, uh, but I was really fortunate to have gotten close to a thousand hours by the time I left. And I did two combat tours in Afghanistan. Uh, and so 450 combat hours, 117 combat missions by the time I left my first assignment, which was a lot at the time. And then after that, went on to be a instructor teaching what we can now call CISOs, which are combat systems officers back at Pensacola. And the Air Force set up their own training program there. And I did four years there as an instructor and then as an evaluator. So I taught instructors and then evaluated instructors and students. Um, and it was so fulfilling. I love being an instructor and I love watching the light bulb come on for students. It's incredibly fulfilling. And I've had unusually long assignments. That's not normal for people to have four and four year assignments. 
After that, I went to the Air Command and Staff College at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. I did a year there getting paid to be a full-time student, which is, I think, one of the best gigs in the Air Force to just have to read books and write papers and get paid a salary to do that. Uh, and then I ended up becoming a political military affairs strategist, and that took me back to the United Kingdom again. And I was stationed at Mildenhall, working at United States Air Forces Europe in the United Kingdom. Uh, what an amazing job being a liaison, um, getting to party for my country, which is always really fun to be able to do. <laughs> um, I worked the F-35 program while I was there. Um, I got to work with partner nations. So obviously the UK worked very, very closely with, uh, we did um, exercises with the French. I worked with the Danish Air Force a little bit. Um, so really cool job. And then after that, uh, came here to San Antonio, where I became the commander of Air Force Recruiting Service Detachment 1 and got to work on one of the most incredible missions I think anybody could be a part of, which was inspiring youth to get excited about aviation, to make you know parents, educators, kids aware of all the incredible opportunities that are out there, aviation related, Air Force related, you know, scholarship related, to help them achieve their dreams. Um, and then getting people on that path, if they desire to, to become a, a rated officer or a winged aviator. So I did that for a year, and then now I'm sitting in my current position as chief of rated diversity, like I said, which is where I work very similarly to support the debt one mission, but at the strategic level. And then I also work help work policy issues as well. Um, but all in all, it's about getting as many kids in the United States and young adults aware of the opportunities that exist in the Air Force and to get them into cockpits. Because uh, as our chief of staff has stated, is, diversity is a strategic comparative, specifically among our rated core, because that's where we pull our, our leadership from. So I, I love the, the mission that I've been working on for the past couple of years. It's quite a career. We're going to unpack a lot of that. I would like to back mm -hmm. up all the way kind of the beginning. So you said sure. sophomore year in college is when you mm -hmm. decided to join ROTC. What was the catalyst for that? The catalyst was uh, my freshman year was maybe not as stellar as it should have been. <laughs> and I was quote unquote, highly encouraged by my dad to join ROTC. Uh, and I think he just realized that I was maybe a little bit lost. I was I was 17 when I started college, so really young. Um, and I mean, honestly, I don't know that anybody knows themselves or what they really want to do when they're 18. Some people do. My husband is an example, has wanted to be a fighter pilot since he was five years old and then went on to become a fighter pilot. That, that definitely wasn't <laughs> me. So um, I think he just saw that I needed some structure and guidance. I was very, very active in a lot of activities in high school. Um, and then my first year of college, I think I just kind of got overwhelmed because I went to a huge school and I just don't think I found my my place. And then joining ROTC was good for me because it was around really motivated people who liked being part of a team. And I, I like working in teams. I like the collective. I love collaborating um, and to see people who were self-motivated and passionate and to have a common sense of purpose really kind of got me back on a, on a path that I, I think I veered off of a little bit. 
Yeah, sometimes we have to max perform for a little bit and then we got to pull the throttle back and <laughs> yeah. re-cage. <laughs> yeah, I definitely needed a re-caging. I was just like a lopsided ADI at that point. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, I think we've all been there, but it's good to have a little bit of structure. Out of ROTC, you go off to navigator training. Can you tell mm-hmm. me, did you know you wanted to go fly Strike Eagles in? Was it the incentive flight that got the hook or were you kind of open to doing different things when you went through training? So I would say the incentive flight is what really changed everything for me. Because when I joined, I have a degree in criminal uh, or in criminology, so criminal justice, um, which is not like very helpful for aviation. Same <laughs> with my, you, inter- my international affairs degree does me no good. Right, yeah. right. It, it doesn't, you know, and for everybody listening out there, it doesn't really matter what you get your degree in because the diversity of thought matters and, you know, <laughs> that goes with, with your degree as well. Um, but I think, I think with aviation, it's very binary, you know, it's, it's love at first flight. Like you either love it or you're like, this is not for me. And, and for me, I got in that plane and we were doing spins and barrel, barrel rolls and loops. And I couldn't get enough of it. I was like, this is amazing. Um, so I thought I joined to be like an OSI agent or an intelligence officer, but as soon as I found out you would get paid to to do that. I was like, this, this is ridiculous. Like, this is obviously what I want to do. Again, at 18, you know, when you think about the commitment of pilot training, which was 10 years and still is 10 years, but that's after training. Um, I was like, well, it's about 12 years. Like I'm going to be 30. I'm going to be so old. Like Life is I, over. Can't, I can't commit to that. So I was looking and exploring other rated opportunities and I found out about uh, WISO, so weapon systems officers, and they only had a six-year commitment. Um, and I didn't ever, I didn't grow up like wanting to be a pilot, like die hard. I was around aviation my whole life because my dad worked in the aviation industry. Like I had been going to air shows as long as I can remember. So I was always around airplanes. Um, so for me, it wasn't like this driving passion to become a pilot, but I, I, I wanted to be in aviation at that point and I wanted to fly. Um, and I wanted to fly fighters and there's one job in the air force where you can not have to be a pilot and fly fighters. <laughs> so it was the F-15E strike Eagle. So it was perfect for me. And then what really kind of, um, sealed the deal for me is that my, my cousin was, um, a Marine and he had been to Iraq multiple times at that point and had two little girls. And for me, just seeing him. Um, understanding what he was going through. I guess I really didn't have a true understanding of it, but seeing what he was going through, what his family was going through, like I wanted to do a job that was as far forward of the combat line um, where I think I could have been effective and like helpful in, in bringing him home and young men and women like him home. Um, and that's, you know, one of the primary jobs in, in recent war uh, of what Strike Eagle does, which was close air support. And, and then, like I said, I, I really wanted to pick a location. So I looked like in, in Air Force magazine at all the bases and what aircraft. And I saw that F-15s were in England. I'm like, this is, this is fate. So uh, yeah, multiple things got me there, but, um, I, I do think it was what I was meant to do. That's very cool. And the cool aspect is the fact that we have websites now. So you don't have to look at magazines to see where bases Correct. are. It's times have changed, but I think you and I are very similar and it's probably easy for us in the sense that 9-11 happened and I would jump to conclusions here, but I know for me, it was a big cow. So I want to go in to serve 
and you mm-hmm. the same. So yeah, nine so nine eleven happened. I had I just started ROTC, and I was like I said, got my degree in in criminology. So I had, um, and that was under the school of social ecology, which is kind of like sounds very you know hippy dippy, but um, <laughs> yes, but it had an emphasis. So the the full degree was called criminology law and society. So it had the socio socio ecological um, aspect to it. So you were studying um, the whys of, of why, you know, urban development and crime and like the relationship of, of all of those, um, aspects and how they affect one another. So one of my classes was violence in society. And I was sitting in my violence in society class in a summer school class. And we were supposed to take our final that morning. And that's when everything happened. And so I had watched it happening when I was like studying, before the test at Denny's or something watching on TV and like the first plane hit. So I didn't really understand at that point. Cause I grew up in a time where, you know, to me, terrorists had been hijacking planes my entire youth. Like it right. wasn't like so out there for me cause I'd seen it before. So that's what I didn't, I didn't really like, how can you comprehend that much in in that short period of time? Like that was like an hour of my life and then I was supposed to go take this test. And so my instructor or my professor was um, a New Yorker. And so like he was beside himself that day. And he's like, if anybody wants to like not take this test or take it a different day, I support you. But I took it anyways. um, And it really wasn't till like days, weeks later that, you know, you start, they start to peel back what was going on. And then like, you really start to process it um, where I was like, I, I have to do something. Um, and I am a, on my father's side, a fourth generation American. Uh, my great grandfather came t- through Ellis Island from Denmark and then was drafted into the war. He was actually sent back to the trenches very near to where he came from wow. in Denmark. Um, then my grandfather uh, was drafted into World War II. Um, and then my dad uh, joined the Air Force during Vietnam. So at that point, you know, my brother was not interested in joining the military, which it definitely is not for everybody, you know. Um, and so for me, it was just kind of a calling. So I was like, if it's not me, then then who will it be? Um, so I just I felt very compelled at that point to to serve. Um, and I did feel like it was my duty. Um, and, it, and it wasn't like there's no I, you know, I think it does take a certain person in the calling to do this job. So like no harm, no foul on people who don't want to serve. Absolutely. Um, because it, it, it's intense and it, and you have to have um, a passion for this because there's so much sacrifice that comes with it. So if you, if your, your heart isn't in it, I, I don't think it's, it's truly worth it. Yeah. In the end, like the ultimate price can be paid, right. Which is right. Which your life. So it's something to take very seriously. I'm curious, you've done a bunch in your career and I do want to talk about that, but you have a unique perspective in the sense that you, you have the aviation aspect, September 11th, I think a big catalyst, like we just discussed for both you and me. And I would say it's like the easy button or it was very easy for us to be motivated to step up to the plate, but mm-hmm. having your recruiting experience and now we're looking 20 years later, mm-hmm. are there unique challenges to engaging youth or bringing awareness? Like, does that seem like what message resonates for people? So, so this generation that's coming up, like qualified for age now, 20 years later, I'm horrified that I've 
been in for close to 20 years at this point. Um, it's supposed <laughs> to be my high school 20 year reunion and I'm just not doing okay with that. Um, <laughs> but if you think about it, I, and I didn't really realize this till I went to um, staff college, um, you know, my generation has been at war my entire career. This next generation has been at war their entire life. So for us, you know, you included, we were going out there to, to win a war. And for them, how are, do they really think that we're winning a war if we've been doing it their entire life? So that's the challenge that we have is that, you know, sometimes parents aren't supportive of it because they automatically think their child is going to go to war as opposed to the generation right before us where war was kind of sporadic. Like maybe you're going, you're probably not like the cold war had ended, but then we're in the Gulf war, but it was like not, it didn't last like years and years, like right. decades. Um, so that's the, the trouble that we have and what we're trying to, which is a big hurdle for us, especially when it comes to recruiting, like, you know, how do we explain to somebody that this is a promising, fulfilling career when we see constantly in the media that troops are coming home from deployments, troops are coming home from war, because that's apparently all that we do. Yeah. And so uh, that's, that's hundred percent valid because that's all we have been doing. So that's a unique right. challenge. And I think capturing that. So it ties into your, you know, being the commander at debt one, focusing specifically on youth. So mm -hmm. what were some of the initiatives? What were some of the, you know, the ways that went about trying to engage youth in message in this environment? So uh, I was very lucky that my predecessor, um, Deacon Ruffin, was very much a visionary and him along with Lindsay Andrew, the DO, and she's been the director of operations through three commanders at this point. The two of them were very... Um, they're idea people, which I love. Um, I don't consider myself an idea person. I consider myself <laughs> an executor. Um, I can take your idea and run with it. So I was very, I think the sequence of commanders worked out really well for that one. Um, so they did a smattering of things. Like it was spaghetti on the wall, trying to do as many programs as possible. And so I got to choose when I took over the things that I really wanted to expand upon and flourish. So one of them was what uh, he called the ACE Academy. It's now called the Aim High Flight Academy, which is now live website, aimhighflightacademy.com. But taking um, students from just across the board, they don't have to be, have any affiliation to the military and providing them um, three weeks of scholarship, of aviation scholarship so that they can solo. So solo is really the point where you like build the confidence in somebody that like, I can do this, you know, and it's about 12 ish, 15 ish hours. So three weeks of training. So the, the flight Academy just has such an incredible opportunity. So we, the great thing about it is it takes kids that are unaffiliated with the military, but it also um, intersperses them with um, J ROTC kids, ROTC and Academy kids. So they all get this immersive learning experience with each other. And then we have um, active duty reserve and guard mentors that come in and um, talk about their real life experience. So I just think the cross pollination of all of these different experiences really helps us reach those students who have no affiliation with the military or aviation to get them excited about it. And then they go back and tell their friends and families about it. So it that's where we need to work on getting our message out because 
the military has very much become a family business. Like if you're very likely related to somebody in the military, if you are in the military. And so, you know, post, post Vietnam, you know, we had in post-World War II, especially like a majority of the population had somebody in their family that were related to who's in the military because of drafts. Right. Right. Now it's something like 12%. Like not a lot of the population has any idea what the military is, what it means. You know, we can go into the whole, you know, how many people can name four branches now, five branches of the service. Like most people can't, but um, so that was one was that camp, which I think is really like such a keystone of what debt one does. Then there's other um, outreach opportunities. So aim high outreach, which was providing orientation flights. Like I said, for me, it took one flight, one flight changed my life. Right. So that's what we're trying to do is get kids on one flight. For some kids, it's the first time they've ever set foot in an airplane or ever seen an airplane. Um, and so how exciting is that to be part of the spark that you know could really grow into a fire and a passion? And then we also provide mentors um, now called the AIM program. So Aviation Inspiration Mentorship Program, which is where we take the total force um, ambassadors, so rated officers, so pilots, CISOs, ABMs, and RPA pilots, we use them as ambassadors to, to go out to do all of these events. And so we were doing on average about two events a week. And that was everything from like elementary schools to, you know, NBAA, which is attended by tens of thousands of people trying to get the message out. Because again, it's, it's about information. Like we are fighting a narrative that we see in the media, we see, you know, in Hollywood, and um, we're trying to put truth data out there. And really we're trying to provide people education about opportunity um, because here we have this program. It's, you know, three weeks of flight, which is again, tens, tens of thousands of dollars that is free. It's a free opportunity for these kids. So it's just about getting it into their hands. And so a lot of people don't know how to do that. So it's up to us to get the message out to them. And that was the other thing that I think we've seen um, in COVID is that there is a disparity in access to information. You know, when you see kids who are, you know, young kids who are sitting outside their elementary school because they don't have Wi-Fi at home, like we can't expect people that, you know, from different backgrounds, socioeconomic status, that they have the same access to information. They, they don't. Um, so we have to really put it out in their hands because there is there are kids out there that are in, you know, less than ideal situations who are bright and talented. Um, and I want to give them an equal fighting chance of the kid that, that has, you know, their own iPad at six years old. Right. And that's now rolling into your new job, which is rated mm -hmm. diversity. So can you tell me a little bit why that job was created? What mm -hmm. are some of the challenges and really what, what are you doing in that role right now? Right. So this role was really more uh, at the strategic level, meaning it's higher, higher level. So debt one is really going out into the field and doing hands on at my job. Now it's, it's about, you know, developing, um, you know, the policy, developing the strategy for it to be implemented air force wide, because at the end of the day, everybody has a responsibility to be a recruiter. Um, and, I think the Air Force, you know, and, and generally, like, we, we could all do better at that. You know, we we for sometimes forget when we wear a uniform that we are a walking advertisement, um, especially if you look different. But I can't tell you, and I'm sure you're the same way when you, like, 
go run into the gas station or like run into Target really quick or, the, you know, run to the grocery store to grab milk for your kids. And you happen to be in your flight suit. Uh, people stop you. People point at you like it happens more often than not. So we each have a responsibility to not only just be that walking ambassador, but to like to engage. Um, and it's not just it's not so much about recruiting people to join the Air Force. And that I think that's the great thing about debt one, it is about inspiring that next generation to do anything we, we are in a global competition, we have near peers, if not true peers. Um, even if they don't join the military, I still need that young person to reach their full potential. Like we, we don't have the luxury of not having every single individual reach their full potential for this country. Absolutely. So we have skipped around a little bit out of order, but you bring a unique perspective that I really wanted to dial in on, but I don't want to just gloss over the fact of your, or gloss over your F-15 career and then your instructor career. So mm -hmm. before we wrap up the podcast, can we talk a little bit about the Mighty Strike Eagle and your first assignment? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so the Strike Eagle is amazing. Uh, I think people don't realize how uh, massive of an aircraft it is. It's about the size of a tennis court. I believe it. It's yeah. <laughs> it was really funny because when I was in Afghanistan, sometimes, you know, the USO comes and like brings celebrities to come visit us. And we had Jane Scandolfini and an NFL player who I have no idea who it is because I'm, I just don't follow sports, <laughs> but a big dude. Right. And I remember them sitting in the Viper and it was just funny because they kind of look like um, Donkey Kong, like sitting <laughs> in a Mario Kart. Yeah. And then James Gandolfini, who's huge, right? Then he got in the Strike Eagle and it was just spacious, right? He's just like, this is nice. I was like, yeah, it is. It is a massive aircraft and we, you know, carry quite the payload. Like it, yeah. we can get the job done, you know, two Strike Eagle, a pair of Strike Eagles. Like we could just take, you know, all the ATO lines. Why not? Yeah. Um, for me, going, going into combat, I was obviously really nervous and scared. I remember crossing the the border into Afghanistan, flying the jet in the very my very first day ever, and being like, "Wow, this is it!" And then landing um, in in Bagram, and this is two thousand. Gosh, two thousand. Let me do math right now. I think two thousand eight, winter two thousand eight, and it's still relatively wild west out there. Like it's a chain link fence. Like there's still <laughs> mines in the ground that have no like barriers. It's just like a little tiny sign that's about the size of like your iPhone that says mines. Yeah. Thanks, Soviets. And, yeah. And and the roads aren't paved, you know. Um, there's still revetments with like pieces of MIGs and stuff in there. So it was just like really strange. You know, the the ANA and the ANP don't have uniforms. So you see somebody with an AK-47 and you're like, are you in or outside the wire? Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure. So it was a little bit nerve wracking at first. Um, but really to, to go out there to take the three, four years of training it took to get to my first combat tour and to get to implement it, um, to hear the voices on the radios of, you know, the JTACs that you're working with, you get to develop a relationship with people over the radio you know, if you check in and you recognize each other's voices and especially being as a female, um, 
very recognizable on the radio because there weren't that many of us um, to know that, you know, there's, you've already built that teamwork. You, you trust each other. So when it, when it hits the fan, like you've already, you know, you've got standard procedures, like you trust each other. He trusts you when he's reading me coordinates. I know they're good ones, you know? And like, if he says, if I say like, I'm in, in like 30 seconds, like he knows like 30 seconds, like he can trust me. Um, Cause I worked with a, a JTAC pretty often. Cause I, we usually flew like similar lines. They tried to keep us on a normal schedule. So I'd fly the same lines, like probably for a couple of weeks and like develop a rapport with one of the JTACs that was out there. And, you know, after working together for so long, like one day it did hit the fan and to hear the fear in his voice and, and to be like, you know, able to stay calm for him, deliver the weapons where he needed them on time. And like, and then to land and like go back and get him on the phone to know that he was okay. Um, you know, that, that makes everything worth it. Like that is, that is what I signed up to do is to, to protect him. Um, it's the the 18 year old with the rifle on the ground. Um, it it just made it, I am fulfilled. Like as a wizzo, I did my job. Um, and then I got incredible opportunities. Like I got to fly the MiG 21 when I did an exchange with the Romanian Air Force. I think I might be one of the only women to do that. When I when I flew their MiG, they'd only ever had one other, they, they had their first like female fighter pilot. So I was like the second female to ever fly in it. Um, they have different training rules. <laughs> I, I can only imagine. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it clipped some trees. Uh, <laughs> not the 500 foot, you know, allowance that we have. I think uh, it was like five feet. Um, but what an, I mean, what an opportunity. Like that, that doesn't happen in real life. And then um, going and being an instructor at Pensacola, you know, it, flying on the Gulf Coast is gorgeous. It's it's awesome flying. Um, and then doing the training that we had at Pensacola, you know, I, I live for low levels. Like it is my favorite flying. And when we do these low levels to me, it's, to me, it's kind of like doing a board game, but in 3d and going very, we'll, we'll say very fast, yeah. like to, you know, it's up. It's, fa so like, it's, it's, it's faster like than most. It's like 450 knots. Yeah. yeah, it's faster than most. <laughs> it's not Cessna 80, 90 knots, but yeah. it's not like 450 knots, like the Strike Eagle. Um, you know, 240 is still pretty good. Um, but, you know, I love those spatial games. And so, you know, getting to do that with students and like getting to go out and fly, it's a good day when you get to do that. I think, you know, before we wrap up, I'm, I have one more question for you, but I, I think this, this is a perfect way that if someone is looking at like, ah, if I join the military, if I join the air force, especially going the rated route, it's a long commitment. Yeah, absolutely. Like 10 years, is a long commitment, eight years is a long commitment. Uh, but it's one of those things you're going to do things that no one else gets the opportunity to do. And that most people would honestly like give their right arm, you know, for the opportunity just to do it once. So Mm -hmm. The people, the mission, the the things, the experiences, I think like I would absolutely go back and do it again in a heartbeat, mm -hmm. um, which is just really cool. So that's something I think is important to throw out there because, again, you're signing on the dotted line. It's a long commitment and it's a big commitment because you're like willing to risk your life. Right. But as we wrap up the podcast, I always like to ask people if you found, you know, 15 or 16 year old Lilo walking on the streets today, what advice would you give her? Yeah. So. I decided to do this job, you know, and I was, like I said, I was 18. So I was, I was 20 when I signed 
you know, on the line. When you go to field training, you're basically like making a commitment. So it was 20. It was, I didn't want to look back on my 20s with regret. While I'm trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up, I'm going to do this because I know it's going to have purpose in it. Um, and so I would give myself that advice. And I, and I give this advice to people now because I can't tell you how many times I've talked to somebody who's like in their 30s and have said, I've always wanted to do it, but and I'm like, then why didn't you? Because now you're in your 30s and you still haven't figured out what you want to do. Like you should have just done something then. So my advice would be like, take the risk. Don't be afraid. Say yes more. I wish I had said yes to risk more um, because I was okay with failure. Like failure didn't really ever scare me. I mean, it scared me, but I was like, I know I'm going to give it my best. And if my best doesn't work, so be it. Um, that it's going to be okay. You take the risk. The risk is going to pay off. Uh, and I look back now and I, I, I still don't know what I want to be when I grew up. <laughs> Fair. But I know that I spent my 20s with a purpose. So, you know, that's my advice to young people is like, don't don't worry that you don't know what your future is going to be, that you don't know what you want to be. Like you're not a hundred percent with your decision, make a decision and see what comes of it. I love it. I think a perfect way to wrap up the podcast, Lilo, Lieutenant Colonel Armandy. Thank you so much for joining me. I know people are really going to enjoy hearing your pathway to the wings. Thank you. So good to be here. Love it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the pathway to wings podcast. We have lots more in store. We'll be back in two weeks. Wherever you're listening, please hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode and leave us a rating review over on iTunes. That will help us out.